The sermon text today is from Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in the times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Hegeon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. What a beautiful sound of hearing all of your voices this morning, filling this room uh, with harmonies and, and different, different pitches that uh, all mix together to make a unified, wonderful, encouraging sound to my soul. This week I uh, really struggled in my sermon prep in, in a lot of things that were just making the week go by really difficult and... Uh, one of you had told me in the middle of the week, I've been, I've been praying for you. And I thought, well, that's kind of out of nowhere. And uh, she said, you preached a sermon last week that really encouraged us to press on with confidence in God's call on our lives and his ability to sustain us and empower us for that. And Satan hates that. And he'll want to tear you down and us down. So I'm praying for you. And man, did I ever feel that battle this week. And now as I'm going to preach on a psalm commanding us to sing, to start off with all of you singing that encouragement right into my ear is such a motivation and an inspiration to get up here and bring the word. So let's bow our heads in prayer and ask God to fill us with hope and confidence that uh, his spirit is at work among us today. God, we need you. You've given us your word. You've sent your son 
to live a perfect life for us that we could not live, to die on the cross, the atoning death that we deserve. We deserve your wrath for our rebellion against your rule over all the earth. But your son took that wrath for us and he rose from the dead, defeating death and giving us power by your spirit over our own sin, over the temptations of Satan, over the curse of this world. And I pray that you would use this psalm to to encourage us and strengthen us and guide us for wielding that power that we would become more like Christ. We would band together as a family in Christ and we would press on until he returns to make all things new. Amen. Now, oftentimes the world, like my week, can feel like a battlefield. It can be a lot of things that are are keeping you down, or you're facing all week long. This crazy culture brings battles into our lives every day. Maybe your marriage is struggling right now, or your job, your mental health is a struggle, sermon prep, or just you have, a lot of you have newborn babies and it's hard to sleep. It's exhausting. All of these things oftentimes conspire together to keep you confused, discouraged, without some kind of unifying purpose, as I was this week in my sermon prep, going, how does this fit together? Where is this going? Jesus promised us that in this life we will have many troubles, but we are to be courageous, take heart, because he has overcome the world. We should not be surprised or fearful, he said, if if we are to face trials, because he will be with us. We are to bear our crosses in this life, and he promises to deliver us from the valley of the shadow of death. We get all those promises. It's easy to say those things when life's going well. But on those days where Satan's just really getting those snares set well, it's so easy to forget. So easy just to want to pull away, go hide, run away, curl up, and just wait for the storm to pass over. But he calls us to engage, to fight. So what are we supposed to do to remember all of these promises? Because just just because Jesus says he'll be with us and deliver us doesn't mean we get to sit back and just wait for him to do all the work. He's actually empowered us to do something in those circumstances. When Satan is on the attack, we are empowered to fight back. Paul told the Ephesians, our weapons in this battle are spiritual, truth, righteousness, salvation, faith, the word of God. We have all these things, but sometimes we just don't know how to employ them. We don't know how to, we don't know them well enough to go to battle for our souls. We're not knowledgeable enough, or we think that our lives are just too messy that we can't do anything about it. But That's exactly what this psalm is for. David wrote this psalm for the mess of our lives. When we're searching for joy and can't seem to grasp it. When we're longing for direction and can't seem to find it. When we're stuck, discouraged, weak, needy. We keep coming up empty. This psalm gives us some instruction for employing all of these spiritual weapons. It's showing us how to employ them By singing. How to go to battle for your soul by singing God's praise. So when suffering strikes you, 
when your enemies threaten you, when your weakness holds you back and your sin keeps pulling you down, you can go to battle for your soul by singing God's praise. And he promises when you seek him through your, through song in your weakness, he will come to your side in the battle. This psalm was actually really encouraging to me this week as I struggled to find a structure, a purpose, a unifying theme in it all. I realized as I looked at the structure that itself, the structure itself reveals this broken attempt to find a unifying theme and crying to God for help. The psalm in Hebrew is what we call an acrostic. That means it follows the alphabet, the first line A, the second line starts with the B. But in, in the Hebrew alphabet, well, what's interesting about this psalm is that it's kind of broken. Some, usually an acrostic has one line with each letter or two lines with each letter. This one has one line with one letter, two to four lines with other letters. Some letters are missing. It's like David wanted to create something unified and beautiful to fight back and it just wasn't working. It's an encouragement to us that whatever you got, bring it in praise to God and he will guide you through the battle. So this psalm has two halves that follow kind of the same outline. The second half is just a tweak of perspective on the first half. So the psalm opens in verses 1 and 2 with choral hope as David urges himself to sing thanks and praise to God. He's stuck in lament. He's determined to sing his way out of it. And so the following verses show what and how he's singing. Verses 3 to 6 are a personal plea straight to God for him to act on David's behalf. And then verses 7 through 9 ground this confidence in God and his rescue in foundational truths about who God is. And then he, from there he moves into verse 10 with this inspirational trust. Declaring faith in God who will answer this prayerful song. And then the second half, 11 through 20, take the same themes, but invite the congregation of God's people to join him in this melodic battle for his soul. So let's look a little more closely at the text, starting in verses 1 and 2, and let it guide us through our messes. This choral hope starts in verses 1 and 2. David says, I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So you can see right away in these first four lines of the psalm, it begins with that refrain of I will, I will. This isn't a future tense verb that he's just looking forward to the day when these things will happen. It's the structure of the verb is a command. It's a first person imperative. He's commanding himself, do this, sing. He knows he's stuck. He knows what he's made for. And he determines to get to that place, what God made him to do by singing to God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, other Psalms say. Or Psalm 42 does the same type of thing. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 
Now we can't be sure if David wrote all of these songs in a group right next to each other. But at least I believe that the priest who arranged the Psalter thought it would be instructive to put these Psalms in this order. You have Psalms 1 and 2 talking about this exalted man, this king, the son of God who rules over all things. And then 3 through 7 are just laments where you just feel this weight of sadness because the world is not as we would expect with this guy on the throne. Jake preached three of those laments in a row just over the last month, and you could feel the the weightiness of them, right? Just kind of dragging us down a little bit, clinging to hope, but not there yet. And then Psalm 8 last week, that was quite refreshing, wasn't it? This confidence in God on his throne, empowering us to represent his rule. Now go do it in a way that exalts him on his throne. That was refreshing. That's how David is reminding us in Psalm 8. How do you get out of your lament and your, your discouragement? Not by focusing on yourself, but on who God is and what he has called us to be under him. Now Psalm 9 is trying to take all those things together and put faith, feet to the faith of all of these songs. How do we get our hearts to this place where we can be in joyful service to God? David declares... He is going to give thanks to Yahweh with his whole heart. He's in this song. He wants to surrender everything from the deepest parts of him. Nothing hidden. All of it on the table. And transform me from the inside out. Not some half-hearted attempt. Fine. I'll come to the church that you've invited me to. I'll see if this Jesus thing works. Surrender. All of it. Here it is, God. Everything I have offered through a song. Singing engages our hearts like no other kind of expression can. Songs stick in your memory a long time, and they carry with them those deep emotional ties the first time you experience that song. A song can come on the radio or a Super Bowl halftime show, and suddenly you're like, yeah, I remember when I was 16. There was... I'll skip that part. (laughs) They can, songs can just grab your imagination and transport you out of where you are into another time, into another place. You can almost taste those, those tastes again and smell every, the aromas in the air. You feel those emotions again, like you did the first time you heard that song. So God commands us to sing in order to shape our hearts and transport us into His truth. And experiences with him. He does so here, verse 11, all over scripture. Singing is a powerful shaper of the heart. And so God commands us to sing. Christianity is the only religion in the world where we are, people are commanded to sing. It's so beautiful. It's a reflection of God's own nature. All of the voices in the room, some high, some low, some harmonies, some melodies, and then the accompaniment of some music to help engage more of our senses, more of our emotions. All of that together filled with timeless truth, expressing God's own beautiful, timeless, harmonious, triune diversity, three in one unity. No other religion inspires such beautiful music. 
all other religions have these chants, these monotone chants. You could go to Minneapolis now. It's, it's, a, it's the law that the Muslims can blare their calls to prayer five times a day. It sounds just like you would be in Palestine or in Mecca. Five times a day on the loudspeaker throughout the city. This piercing chanting in a language nobody, not even the Muslims, can understand. It, it's like oppressive to your soul. It makes you want to cover your ears and hide. That's not music. It enslaves the soul. It doesn't lift it. David is calling us to something that builds you, that helps you battle for your soul by singing God's praises, singing songs worthy of our most high God. Now, essential to these kinds of songs, though, it just doesn't make us feel good. These songs in order to be effective, must be full of lyrical truth. I was recently singing a song that popped up on the radio, on my, on my feed, and it was from my college days, and immediately I was like, I know that song, yeah, singing along, and I slowed down and went, oh my goodness, I'm singing about depression and despair and suicide, like it's cool. No wonder... I struggled so much as a young man to find my purpose and confidence. Look what I was filling my heart with. But David declares two things that his songs will focus on in order to shape his heart in hope. One, he's going to focus on God's wonderful deeds. And two, God's own character. David wants to be glad and exult in the name of God most high. Exult means the song is just welling up in so much excitement that I have to move my body. I need to jump. I need to dance. Even if I don't know how to dance, I have to move. I have to get my arms out. This is what David wants. Not just because he, God rescued him, but because he knows God. He experiences God. This is how he's going to battle for his soul. So these two things set forth the song of praise in the following verses, starting with David's personal plea in verses 3 through 6. You can read those again with me. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. When you're reading Psalms, sometimes it's really difficult to determine what the main thing this psalm wants me to take away? What, what is this song? The one thing this song is all about. Sometimes it can be like last week, Psalm 8. There's a repeated verse. Verse 1, verse 9. Same thing. That's what this is about. Or sometimes it's in the middle. It builds this crescendo to this climax. You feel that and then you resolve from that. Other times there's parallel lines or contrasts that kind of give you this is the focus. But in Psalm 9, none of those things are really present. Really, it's the grammar that holds the key. You thought that you had to pay attention in English class. Well, this is one reason why. Changes in verb tense and pronouns 
give you clues on what is building in this. Pronouns are vital for revealing truth. He who has ears to hear. These verses turn from David commanding himself to sing. Now turn to David speaking to God. Speaking to God about what God has done in the past for his own people. So the pronouns have shifted from I, me, first person, to you, second person, God. David speaks directly to God in a way that he's, he's appealing to what God did in the past. All these things that God has done in Israel's history and saying, what you did there, you can do now in my life. This shows a really important concept for understanding the Bible, how we interpret the Bible. So often we approach the Bible as though we want to just get an answer about this thing. Where's the section on how to learn about this thing? Or I want to learn about this person, so I'm going to open to this page. I want to know how to do this. So where's the instructions for how to accomplish that? Like it's an, a reference book. But the Bible is constructed more as a big story of history with all these small stories that seem to kind of repeat the same problems, the same calls, the same cries for help, but the same resolution every time. Longing for someone to kind of, to finally come and bring permanent resolution. And so, David is calling upon God in this way, recalling all these things to make it easier for himself. He's inserted himself into those experiences in order to apply them now. Like what he's currently experiencing is of biblical significance. You can live these. You can immerse yourself in these stories and bring them into your life to say, that same God, he's going to work in my life. I'm longing for the same thing all those people always longed for. So David is very poetically here immersing himself into Israel's history, recalling how God worked then. Like verse 1 said, recalling, recounting God's wonderful deeds. We're not exactly sure which stories. All of these are just allusions, not illusions, allusions to other things that God has done, not direct quotes. But we're not so much concerned about the particular stories. We're concerned about the common works of God in all of them, in every story. So David says here in the psalm that he's remembering when God's enemies tried to run away, but they stumble and perish before his presence. He remembers when God defended his people from unjust actions. David recalls God on his throne, judging Wicked people, rebuking nations, bringing their demise, blotting out their names forever, leaving their cities in ruins. So let your imagination go. Maybe he's thinking of Genesis 6 and Noah's flood. God on his throne, judging that the whole world is wicked. And he destroys it with a flood and everyone's scattering, trying to run away from him. But the entire globe is covered in water. There is no escape from his judgment. And those people are wiped off the planet forever. Maybe think of the Exodus story. Israel crosses the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. They walk through the water on dry land and Egypt tries to chase them through. They get halfway through and they slam on the brakes with their horses. And they realize, oh no, Yahweh is fighting for them. 
And they try to turn around and quick pull a U-turn in the Red Sea. And they're trying to run away and their chariot wheels get stuck and they break off. And God destroys them as they try to flee from his presence. There's many more similar stories David could be remembering. Even in his own day, surely David remembers just a few years ago when the Philistines captured the ark. In 1 Samuel 15, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's throne. God sitting on his throne in the presence of his people. But the Philistines took it. What are they going to do? Well, here they are. They bring the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne, into the temple of their false god. And their false god falls on the floor and busts in pieces. And all the people break out in illness. They bring it to another city and all the people get sick. And they bring it to another city and all the people get sick. Everywhere God's rule goes, he brings justice. David knows this. And he anticipates that God is going to work in this situation just like he did then. But it's not just because God has done some things like this in the past that he thinks God might do them again now. God's wonderful deeds are founded, grounded in God's wonderful, unchanging character. So David's song shifts again to foundational truth in verses 7 through 9. But Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. So again, verbs and pronouns are switching, focusing less on talking to God and now singing about God. Who is this God? What's he like? David isn't just remembering what God has done, but it goes deeper into why God does these things because of his own character. His reign is established in justice. He he has authority over all things. He's on his throne, verse 7 says. Nothing can thwart his plans. He speaks his decrees and nobody can resist them. When, when God speaks, his word goes out and accomplishes exactly what he set it out to do. He's a God of justice. He rewards good and he punishes evil. Whatever determinations he makes are right and true. If someone is sinning against him in this circumstance of David, David knows God will punish him eventually. And he'll reward those who seek to do the right thing. Someday God is going to set things back in order. That will be our reward. Because God is righteous, David says in verse 8. Righteous speaks of right order. The way God does things is right. All the things that come out of his works are right. He maintains his covenantal obligations. He keeps his promises. They are guaranteed forever. That permanence forever is throughout this psalm as well. His reign is forever. His judgments are everlasting. God is not going to change his mind. He's not going to become a different kind of God today than he was in those previous generations. That God of Abraham, that God of Noah, the God of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, that's my God. All of these characteristics assure David in verse 9, Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed in times of trouble. If you seek him, if you seek to sing praise to him and surrender to him, you can be certain this glorious nature of God will be your refuge. 
It's vital to understand this word oppressed, what David means by it. Literally, the word oppressed means miserable, crushed, held under some heavy weight. Someone who's beat down and can't get ahead. But you can't decouple this thought of oppression from the the reality of righteous judgment. You can't embrace sin, identify yourself with sin, and then feel all the the necessary consequences and shame that come from that, and then feel like, oh, I'm oppressed, no fair. You're not oppressed simply because you have a minority view of something. Oppression, biblical oppression, is referring to people who are seeking to do the right thing, striving to build God's right order. And they can't ever seem to make progress because the enemy is on the outside pushing them back, pushing them down. If you're ever feeling down because of your sin, that's called righteous judgment. That's not oppression. But if you are oppressed in pursuing righteousness, God is a refuge, a stronghold. Because he's righteous. He's the source of your righteousness, of your interest in his righteousness, and he's the goal of your righteousness. So he's going to do everything he can to keep you on the path of righteousness until the day when his right order finally fills the whole world. So it's with this confidence now that David gets to the end of the first verse of his song. He knows that God has acted very personally in people's lives. And his character is behind that. So David moves to verse 10 with inspirational trust. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Remember that name, Yahweh, means God's personal covenant commitments, his character. It's a short way of speaking about all that God has done and promised to do and who he is, his righteous, perfect, holy character. David declares, if you sing about that, if you put your trust in that, you can be certain he will exercise his righteous justice on your behalf. He will build your life in righteousness. His nature, his past work will produce Good catch. Future results for weak, needy, poor people like us who offer him our whole heart. That's what it means to have faith. Faith is not just ignorant pursuit of something, closing our eyes despite reality, stubbornly clinging on to this imaginary being. Faith is actually seeing who God is and what he has done. He's revealed his nature. He's shown his works and trusting that that God is going to work in my life. And he's going to similarly deliver me. Since David knows now that music has a special way of penetrating our hearts, pushing good ideas or bad ideas into our hearts. He's determined to make these two concepts the theme of his song, God's deeds and God's character. He wants these things to be driven into his heart to guide him through the chaos, through the confusion, the mess and the temptations of life, all the way to a place of gladness and exultation. Now, we don't have time to go through that slowly, the rest of the psalm, but it's basically the same thing. There's but one more piece of poetic wisdom that 
David wants us to understand in the rest of this psalm. He's going to cover all the same kinds of truths in the second verse, but he's joining, inviting the congregation to join him in this psalm. The first half was kind of his opening solo to introduce the congregation of Israel standing at the temple, he up on the stairs of the temple and everyone else gathering in to hear the song and join him. He sings it to give the theme and the melody. And now he says, stand, sing with me these same ideas. Sing praises to the Lord who sits upon the throne. He's enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So now the, the imperatives are plural. He's commanding many people to sing with him. Everybody loves music. It's kind of built into us. Our culture loves music. But you notice how everyone who loves music these days has noise-canceling headphones or earbuds in. They want this personal experience, not a corporate experience. Even professing Christians say they love their favorite kind of worship is where the music is so loud. It just drowns everybody else out and it makes it feel like it's just me and God. But David knows something about his own heart that rejects that, that drives him to invite the voices of others in. Because it's too easy to twist truth to fit our own perspective or to focus on one little thing over here at the expense of all the others. It's too easy to forget the truth in the very moment you need it or when you realize you're not strong enough or that's not buried in your heart well enough to carry you on your own. We need the voices of others singing to us regularly to remind us when we forget, to show us what we're missing, to let us know we're not alone, to help carry us when we're weak. We need others to remind us of the gospel, making these personal pleas on our behalf. So in verses 13 and 14, he asks the congregation to help him sing this personal plea. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. Sing my affliction from those who hate. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. He needs the congregation to come around him and remind him of God's forgiving grace. Satan constantly driving to push him down, to trip him up. And he knows ultimately his own sin is going to lead him all the way to the grave. But the people are singing to remind him, God's power is enough to raise you from the grave, from the gates of death. Cries out with the congregation for rescue. But remember from last week why God would rescue us. God just doesn't pity us. Oh, those poor people. That's too bad. Why does God care for us? Why does God pay any attention to us? Because he wants us to declare his majesty in all the earth, said Psalm 8. David says the same thing here in Psalm 9. He wants to be rescued so he can stand in front of all the people and sing thanks and praise to God for all his mighty works in his life. Praise for his salvation. God made us to sing. He saves us to sing. And when we sing... Verses 15 to 18 explain how God comes through with this salvation to defeat our enemies. The pronouns switch again, noting that all of the wicked nations are falling into their own schemes, their own traps. They fall right into death as that poor needy 
weak congregation keeps singing, keeps singing, clings to God's truth, and they are preserved together forever. We can be certain of that when we cling to God's truth in song that God will carry us through. And so the congregation finally unifies their voices in one final proclamation of inspirational trust in verses 19 through 20. Arise, O Yahweh, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. Arise. Come up, rise up from the dead, from the grave. God, rising to save is what David knows is the only thing that will overcome human weakness and sin and bring justice upon the wicked nations. He knows that someday perfect justice is coming. So this story of fall and judgment and rescue, fall and judgment and rescue that keeps repeating throughout scripture will finally stop repeating. One day there's going to be a resurrection to happen that will establish right order forever. God is going to come himself and make it happen. And this whole song is a plea for that coming savior that we know is named Jesus Christ. David longed for Jesus to come, to rescue him, not just from his difficult circumstances, but ultimately from death that our sin deserves. And this is precisely what Jesus came to accomplish. This isn't just David's song or our song. This is Jesus' song. Because Jesus, just like David, immersed himself into the stories of the Old Testament to take on their deliverance as his own, Jesus immersed himself into our story. To take our judgment upon himself as his own. Jesus is the one who became oppressed and hated. He went to the gates of death bearing the sin, our sin on the cross. But God raised him from the dead to carry us out of death, out of this repetition, this repeating constantly of our own failures until we finally arrive in the gates of the holy city singing of his salvation. Literally, the, the words ending Hebrews 14, the word, Hebrew words ending verse 14 can be translated, I may sing praise to your Jesus. The name Jesus literally means salvation, Yeshua. It's the same word. We are saved by Jesus and for Jesus. We are saved singing songs of praise and thanks to God for Jesus. And we are saved to sing songs of thanks and praise to Jesus. In anticipation of the one day when we finally all gather around his throne and we are made perfect singing songs of thanks and praise for his deeds and his incredible nature. So I encourage you today. I urge you today. I implore you or command you today as David did his congregation. No matter your confusion or your difficulty or your trial Whatever chaotic season of life you're in, sing to Jesus. This is how we employ all of the spiritual weapons of war. Sing. No matter how many times you seem to try and fail or walk and fall, get up and sing to Jesus. No matter how stuck you feel in the same battles, the same temptations, the same thought patterns, defeat them by singing to Jesus. Remember, 
what he's done in your life. Fill your songs with his perfect life, his sin-bearing death, and his victorious resurrection. Sing about Jesus. Recount the many ways he has worked in other people's lives and recount the ways he's already been so generously kind to you and sing about them. Train your heart to do what Paul commanded the Thessalonians, to give thanks in every circumstance by singing praise to Jesus. Ponder who he is, the son of God, the creator of the world, the friend of sinners, the suffering servant, the victorious lamb the eternal word, and sing about Jesus. Sing the songs of the saints of old as though their experiences are yours. Sing the hymns of previous generations who endured much trouble to remind you that their salvation, their Jesus, is yours as well. Fill your radio with songs to Jesus. Lead your family to sing to Jesus. Drift off to sleep at night singing hymns to Jesus. And invite others. Make Sunday worship a priority every week so other voices are singing Jesus into your heart. Paul commands the Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 19. We are to be spirit-filled encouragers of one another by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Making melodies, giving thanks to God together for Jesus. Let these songs be prayers from your whole heart as you go to battle for your soul by singing praise to Jesus. God delights in answering these prayers. These prayers that desire to result in standing with others and singing more of his praise. You can be confident God will deliver you when that's your aim. Proclaiming God's goodness, joining others in recounting his wonderful deeds, singing praise to the most high God. We're going to pray now. But since I just preached about praying... As a song, we're going to try to sing a song as a prayer. It's the doxology. We can do it, right? I will start. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.